In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. Increasing resources now, you'll not only save many more lives, you'll actually save money. So from an economic and a health perspective, it's sort of the right thing to do. It makes complete sense. It's just not happening. In today's episode, Sarah sits down with Jennifer Cates. Dr. Cates is Vice President and Director of Global Health and HIV Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation, based in Washington, D.C. She is widely regarded as a premier expert, both with respect to domestic and international HIV. She publishes regularly and presents on global health and HIV policy issues in many fora. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. Jen, you've had a particular vantage point for a number of years on the state of HIV financing and tracking the trends. For those who don't watch it as closely, can you give us an overview of, of what we've seen over the last you know, decade plus and kind of where we are now? Sure. So um, the when you look at the history here of the global AIDS response, um, what you see is a dramatic increase in resources. And, and certainly resources are not the only thing to make a difference, but uh, there were very few resources going to low and middle income countries until PEPFAR was launched in 2003. And of course, the creation of the Global Fund, much of which uh, the U.S. gets gets credit for. Um, but that those two things, those two events um, led to a dramatic rise in global resources available for HIV and and um, have saved millions and millions of lives. Um, and what you see if you look over time is resources shot up um, uh, for low and middle income countries, but then the global financial crisis hit in 2008 and they began to level off and they have not recovered. So you see the the line just is kind of straight. It's dipped down some years. It's dipped back, you know, gone back up a little bit, but it's essentially a flat line. And that means that even though the needs are great, there's still gaps and there's a tremendous resource gap. The world is not keeping up. Um, so the latest estimates are that there's a, depending upon the source, there's about 19 plus billion dollars being made available from all sources, from donors, from uh, domestic governments, from out-of-pocket spending, and there's that's less than what's needed. Um, what's needed is several billion more. Um, and it's there's nothing in sort of looking ahead, there's nothing that's really shouting out as, as a major shock to that system yet. Mm. And a disconnect between this period where we're supposed to be accelerating and Definitely. we've got the flatline funding. Definitely. So the, the global response or sort of the current strategy is really predicated on an acceleration. And the idea is that if you accelerate now, which is includes increasing resources now, you'll not only save many more lives. Um, you'll actually save money. So from an economic and a health perspective, it's sort of the right thing to do. It makes complete sense. It's just not happening. Absolutely. And we're at a period now, a couple months out from the Global Fund Six Replenishment, which will happen in Lyon, France in October mm-hmm. 2019. You've served as an alternate board member mm-hmm. for a number of years. How are you kind of reflecting or looking ahead to that conference? What are you expecting? 
Well, I mean, the Global Fund Replenishment Conference um, in October is one of those moments where we could see, um, you know, it could make a difference in this trajectory. Um, you know, there's there's optimism around the goal here. The Global Fund hopes to uh, get pledges of $14 billion or at least for the next three-year period. Um, that's ambitious. Some say it's not ambitious enough. Other, you know, but it's it's um, it's really one of our, our main things that we can look to and see as a moment where global leaders come together and try to commit to doing more. So it really is going to be this um, like domino effect. Hopefully, there'll be some big pledges that come through and that will lead to others. But there's a little uncertainty there too. Um, all eyes will definitely be be on, on the Global Fund. As a, an alternate board member, I can say that you know the, the plans in place for replenishment, the strategy, um, all of the things that you know, you'd want an organization to be doing are there. Um, it's just a matter of how, how, do you, how high can you get this on the agenda of, of the global leaders? Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of global leaders, the United States has been the, uh, you know, by leaps and bounds, the global leader on financing and programmatic um, activity for the last, you know, 16 years. We've seen the Trump administration make requested changes, proposed changes the last three fiscal years that have been pretty significant to both PEPFAR and Global Fund, um, which has also had implications for the proportion that the United States gives to the Global Fund. What's the state of affairs on that? What are you expecting in terms of the U.S. contribution? Yeah, so st- stepping back a little bit, since the Trump administration um, came into power and began requesting its its, its budgets, providing them to Congress, um, the administration has dramatically sought to dramatically cut funding for PEPFAR and the Global Fund. Um, there's there's always a little bit of a give and take with the president, and the administration, and Congress, but these these are not gives and takes. These were actual like uh, cuts large enough that some said could undercut the the effectiveness of the programs. Um, Congress has just every year rejected those cuts um, and and played, a, I'd say, a very prominent role in, in support of these programs by re- just, you know, uh, continuing to fund them. In the most recent budget request, the administration, as expected, um, uh, requested significant cuts through like $1.3 plus billion to PEPFAR itself, the bilateral pro part of it, and then several hundred million cut to the global fund. Again, those were uh, expected and, and everyone sort of who watches that says, yeah, that's going to happen and Congress won't do it. But the administration also put something else in the request. They said, historically, um, whereas the way the U.S. has supported the global fund is through a, a leverage mechanism that provides um, for every every two dollars provided to the global fund uh, by others, the the U.S. essentially provides a dollar. And what the Trump administration proposed in its budget request that was not expected was to change that and say, no, we have to wait for three dollars. Every three dollars mm. will give a dollar. That's significantly less leverage. It's a, a smaller match, and it was not expected. Um, so you know, as as we might expect. Advocates were surprised by it and not thrilled by that because they were concerned that that would send a message that the U.S. was not going to be putting as much on the table. It was also that it would not serve its leveraging function. So that that was the message in the budget request. Um, what has happened since then is the first sort of response to that came from the House, and the House, uh, as expected, not only you know, rejected the administration's cut but actually increased 
the amount that they would provide to the global fund. So that was one. And two, they specifically said, no, we want to stick with the 33% match. We, we, we think this is the, the way that this, this was the intent for con- of Congress. This is how we've been doing it. So, um, you know, whether that wins out, wins at the end of the day, oh, it will now go to the Senate. But it was an interesting development that was, was not anticipated. And I think there's a little uncertainty now in that dynamic mm-hmm. for October. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be the first time, I think, where the sort of prominent role that Congress plays in this equation will be more front and center than has ever been at a pledging conference hmm. for the global fund. Interesting. And do you think with um, with Brexit, some of the other big challenges that we're seeing in Europe, um, that we can expect to see kind of on par uh, pledges coming from those countries that we've seen in the past, or you know, that's possible. There's already some signs, though, that there'll be some increases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, France is hosting the the replenishment, and um, as host, I think there's hope uh, that they will step up a little bit more. Germany has already signaled that. So, I th- uh, yes, there's there's other dynamics at play, and there's some some risk there. But I uh, I think you know there's some good preliminary signs. Um, but you know, you never you don't really know until you until October comes, right? One of the other uh, issues that I know you've been tracking closely are the implications from the expanded Mexico City policy, which is colloquially known as the global gag rule. President Trump announced an expanded version of the Mexico City policy after his inauguration. And last year in Amsterdam at the International AIDS Conference, you presented some findings along with Planned Parenthood Federation of America, the International HIV Alliance, and AMFAR about what we know so far. Has there been any update in the last year on what we're kind of seeing in terms of the implications for programs and partners on the ground? And do you see that changing uh, at all over the next year? So this is um, the so as you mentioned, the Trump administration significantly expanded the Mexico City policy, which has been in place uh, since um, President Reagan. So anytime there's been a Republican president since Reagan, it's been in place. Anytime there's been a Democratic president, it's been take, uh, rescinded. And it essentially has in the past said, um, if you want, if if you're a foreign NGO and you want to receive U.S. Family planning support for low and middle income countries, you have to agree not to provide or promote abortion as a method of family planning. Um, that was the sort of policy back and forth many, you know, over those years. And uh, Trump actually unexpectedly expanded it to cover all of global health, so PEPFAR included, which was uh, a much bigger reach, built, you know, built from hundreds of millions to billions of dollars implicated. Um, one of the challenges with this policy is that it takes a while to see what the impact will be, and also it reaches down into you know NGOs, big and small, all over the world. We did analysis that we released last summer trying to get us a handle on how many PEPFAR um, recipients might be uh, at least required to respond. And using a proxy measure, we identified uh, 470 foreign NGO prime recipients of PEPFAR money um, that we would, of course, have to comply if they wanted to continue to receive that money. And almost 300 U.S. NGO prime recipients who themselves wouldn't have to abide by the policy, but would have to ensure that any sub recipients mm-hmm. did, which is part of the policy. So that's, and we found that that could reach billions of dollars as well. Um, but we also were cautious to say we just don't yet know the impacts. Now it's been more time. And two things I would say is impacts are starting to be reported. Um, there's been several uh, studies, mostly qualitative in nature, that have documented on the ground, um, you know, service disruptions and um, and lack of providers. 
Um, so that's starting to come out. And then more most recently, uh, the Trump administration announced a new uh, or reinterpretation of some uh, the part of the policy that will actually make it much more far reaching um, and actually is a reversal. So it's a Pompeo announcement that essentially said the opposite of what Secretary Tillerson said when he was Secretary of State. And in a nutshell, what this recent announcement from March says is that if you um, under the Mexico City policy, if you have any U.S. funding at all um, and you want to provide any finan- other financial support to um, uh, another organization, non-U.S. support, um, and then subgrant it and subgrant it down and down and down, it doesn't matter how far down you go. If any of the organizations that receive non-U.S. support from you or through your channel carry out these prohibited activities, you can no longer support them. So basically, it says any financial support that you that is provided to any organization whether it's U.S. support or not, um, you cannot be provided to any organization that carries out these activities. So it's basically expanding the, in a way tentacles to mm-hmm. many more mm-hmm. facets of NGOs. How that's going to play out, how many more NGOs will, will be under this policy, we don't know, and how it will be enforced, we don't know. Um, but it certainly is creating more confusion um, from what I've heard. Mm. I imagine when we kind of fast forward to the AIDS conference next summer in the Bay Area, yeah. we'll have an update on it and see yeah. see where we're going. Speaking of AIDS 2020, you're a member of the International AIDS Society Governing mm-hmm. Council um, and a member of the American Friends of, of AIDS 2020 group that we are leading out of CSIS. How are you thinking about that conference in the Bay Area next summer vis-a-vis where we are domestically, where we are globally with the response, what do you think the the key issues and challenges are going to be? Right. So looking ahead, the theme, resilience, which I think is a great theme because I think that's where we are with a lot of the response. It's how can we be resilient in the face of ongoing challenges and, and the, also the challenge of keeping the drumbeat going. I think there'll be two big ways to think about the conference. One will be, what do we know about the global response? It'll be 2020. 2020 was a big um, point in time at, uh, to take stock um, where UNAID says, you know, if we reach uh, 90% of all people with HIV knowing their status, 90% of those people on antiretrovirals, and 90% of those on treatment who are virally suppressed, we will have we will be ex- on the acceleration pace that we need to be to really turn this epidemic around and AIDS by 2030. We're not there, but we'll mm-hmm. have a better uh, readout of where we are, and that's always an important moment to to try to take stock and and either you know will the energy will be important, will it rejuvenate and and keep people fighting, or will it be you know uh, defeating in some way? So hopefully it'll be resilient, mm-hmm. um, but that will be a big part of it, and. And then the second piece is the domestic, uh, what's happening in the U.S. And because of a lot of factors, you know, the new initiative announced by this administration um, and some challenges that remain in the U.S. and having the conference in the U.S., that will be a spotlight. So it will provide an opportunity to, to highlight what's happening, hopefully some progress. Um, and then the third thing I should say, which, uh, you know, there's always new information and new science and new innovations that you learn about at the conference. And so those those are, you know, th- that's probably one of the best parts. Um, the things that you don't anticipate will be will be presented and, mm-hmm. and from all over the world. So, um, I mean, those those be my three things to, to focus on. Let's talk about that domestic initiative now. Um, the U.S. is one of the countries that is not on track 
for these 2020 fast track goals. Uh, and the president announced a new plan in his State of the Union address in February to end HIV in the United States by 2030. What do you think are the two or three things that we should be watching for as this plan gets underway, looking for implementation to start the beginning of, of 2020? Yes. Yeah, so this is the plan announced by the president. It had been in the works for before that and actually builds a lot on things that were done under the Obama administration. But it one of the things it does that hadn't happened is new money is being proposed. And and, um, and that that is with in the domestic context, there has not been new money. So that's uh, a significant um, development. And there's also a strategy that's really trying to focus in the hardest hit places. Um, I think, you know, what this all looking ahead, um, the big, you know, if the the big thing is the budget as step one, because um, if the money doesn't materialize um, on the congressional side, then we have a lot of great ideas, but it's going to be hard to to have any kind of catalytic impact. Uh, there's good signs there, but um, you know how this how this could get caught up in the larger uh, budget battles that we have. Not that this will be singled out, but if there's a continuing resolution, what will that mean? Still, I think there's some good signs there. So that will be one is what the resources are. And actually, the House has has already moved forward and, and asked for a little bit more than that, than the president requested for this initiative. So that's a sign there. But that'll be one. The second is, what does the actual implementation look like? Step one, you know, how are the communities that have been identified going to be engaged? What is what what are the plans that are going to be put in place to really change the dynamic? Because more of the same isn't necessarily going to get us there. Um, this will, if, if change really just starts to happen, it will be in, in 2020. So by the AIDS conference, we will probably have the first few months of some implementation steps, but we won't necessarily see results. Um, that could change because uh, the one other factor that is happening is there's uh, several things that are in place that are going to increase access to PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, for those who are negative. If those steps actually happen and make a difference, that could catalyze change pretty quickly, mm, I think. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. And I see that there are a lot of things that this domestic plan could learn from the years of U.S. global engagement. Uh, and important lessons learned from the PEPFAR program in terms of civil society engagement, strong political will decentralized at, at local levels, um, the accountability framework that's been put in place. Are there other pieces to you that kind of stand out that you'd want to see translated from the global to the domestic? Yeah, I think um, the you know, one of the things that has worked in the global space, um, and it's it, you know, there's no single answer here, but the the real focus, like really focusing on what we know works, um, and where the uh, the people are hardest hit, most at risk, most in need of services, um, and that just moving from uh, sort of every we have to do everything everywhere to we really we we know it works and we know where we need to do it and we know the mix of things we need to do mm -hmm. um, and I, that sounds obvious but it's not always been what's done um, and in the US that's been the strategy pursued more recently but not at the sort of intensity that's probably needed and so I think that is an ongoing lesson I do think the civil society one that you you talked about um, is really really important there's some unique challenges in the U.S. though. We, we um, you know, our healthcare system is, is um, 
is a challenging one to, to wade through with this. And we have a federalist system. So we have the federal government's role, then we have all the states. And that's that pr- presents a different challenge than when you're a donor funding in a country. Um, so, yeah, there are certain unique challenges. But as you started this off, you know, the U.S. is performing much more poorly than its peers, given how much is spent in the U.S. on health care. Um, across the board, we perform the, the outcome measures are worse, mm-hmm. including mm-hmm. on HIV. So um, it's a steep climb to to catch up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, as a final question, I'll let you answer this either way that you would like. But is there uh, something that particularly gives you hope, uh, kind of looking ahead, or is uh, on the flip side uh, something that really kind of keeps you up at night in terms of <laughs> what's going to happen over the next year? On the hope side, I think, you know, you know, there's a lot, there's a tension to HIV domestically that I didn't expect. Um, and that that's, in, in, a, in a positive sense, I think that's hopeful. Um, and, and there's some elements that are in place, ingredients, both from the public sector, um, private sector, and and, adv- and the civil society advocates that are, you know, creating a new energy that, that may actually Lead to results, and that's that's a hopeful thing. I think on the um, on the what keeps me up at night uh, on the global front, I I just the momentum is is not there right mm-hmm. now, and that I don't know how the global community is going to get that back. There's ha- you know unless there's some like as I mentioned some some shift or jump or catalytic moment that really changes the dynamic and, and the equation and gets attention in a way that we you know it's hard to anticipate what that could be, but. Without that, it, it, it's, it's worrisome. And domestically, I do have some concerns as well because on the one hand, with this new energy and, and these new opportunities, all very positive, uh, there's other things happening in the domestic context that, that push in the opposite direction and are, are should give everyone pause, which are things like cutting back on protections for LGBT communities in the United States, um, some issues around those who are um, immigrants. I mean, all, things that, that would actually uh, remove protections and access to health care and health insurance for many, particularly those at risk in the U.S., who are the very populations that this initiative is designed to reach. And how those competing forces... You know, who wins in the in those forces? So that keeps me up at night a little bit. Well, thanks, Jen, as always. Great to have you here and, and get your insights. Thank you. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. For more discussions on global health issues, check out Take As Directed, a CSIS podcast that features deep dive interviews with leaders in the global health policy space. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.